Hey there, dear listeners. Welcome to episode 56 of Health Unchained. On this episode, I spoke with co-founder and CEO of Burst IQ, Frank Ricotta. After time in the Air Force, Frank worked in the cybersecurity and big data field for most of his career. Speaking with Frank gave me hope and confidence that blockchain technology in healthcare is gaining traction and that this technology is truly disruptive to how people, places, and things will interact with each other in our rapidly growing high-tech society. In 2019, Burst IQ raised $5.5 million in a Series A funding round to continue its development of an enterprise-scale HIPAA and GDPR-compliant blockchain solution. Burst IQ also won the 2019 Frost & Sullivan Best Practices Award and more recently won the annual Government Blockchain Association's Innovation Award. I really enjoyed my conversation with Frank and I hope you do too. But before we start the show, I have a couple announcements for you all. I want to let you know that I will be in Austin, Texas, February 26th for the Blockchain and Digital Transformation in Health 2020 event. I'll be moderating a panel on Web 3.0 and the future of decentralized healthcare. The panelists include Todd Chamberlain, co-founder and CEO of Medblocks, Heather Flannery, global leader of Consensus Health, and Brennan Hodge, CEO of Citizen Health. For a preview, check out episode 22 to listen to my interview with Brennan Hodge, where we talked about price transparency in the healthcare industry. If you plan to join, reach out and I'd love to meet you there in person. Find the Eventbrite link to the conference in the show notes and on my pinned tweet on Twitter. Also, for 2020, I will be updating my website, so let me know if you have any suggestions because I want to make sure this show is most valuable for you, the listeners. Additionally, if you haven't already subscribed to Robert Miller's weekly newsletter, Blockchain and Healthcare, you really should. It highlights the best blockchain healthcare stories every week. I appreciate Bert's involvement and leadership in the community. The link to the newsletter is in the show notes. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the Health Unchained podcast. Today's guest is Mr. Frank Ricotta, co-founder and CEO of Burst IQ, a Denver-based blockchain company building a global healthcare network connecting businesses with one mission, and that's to enable the next era of health. Thank you for joining me today, Frank. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be best to get started with your background, so kind of just talk through what your career path looks like and what made you start Burst IQ. Well, you know, that's a, I'm a bit long in the two. So let's, let's start back in the beginning. I started out um, as a young officer in the United States Air Force, a little too blind to fly. <clears throat> so ended up uh, gravitating towards uh, this next era of, uh, of networking and really high capacity computing. Uh, so spent a lot of my early, early career uh, dealing with what most people look at now as, as um, 
as big data analytics. So taking data from lots of different sources and trying to make sense of it. And, and then uh, really, really started to love building networks and, and connecting things. And spent a whole lot of my uh, career within the Air Force doing that uh, for a variety of missions. And the last one was actually really fun because it was an, a, a really advanced tech application. We were launching satellites and had the ability to work with a lot of icons in Silicon Valley during, during those years, which really, really got the software, or, or I should say the startup bug um, uh, being around all those. You know, when you have the opportunity to be in the same room with folks like Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison early on in the development of their company, and you're walking into Cisco Systems, and there's maybe 100 employees at the time, um, and watching them grow and kind of working with with those uh, those individuals, uh, I said, "Geez, I, I'd like to step out and do that." My eight-year point, I, I I did just that, joined a small consulting company, and the founder, which uh, later later started one of the uh, more premier venture capital firms in the industry today, which is Dahl Capital uh, Management. Um, but worked with them, ended up running that consulting firm, and grew that up to offices around the world, uh, and then worked through the the fun bubble crash in the in the 2000 sold that uh, sold that company and ended up buying back back a bunch of technology around um, a lot of cybersecurity work we were doing. That's always been a constant thing for me as well as is cybersecurity as part of the early teams in the Air Force that uh, focused in that area and um, was able to kind of take those skills out in out in the market and and begin building companies around the intersection of security and data. Yeah, and that's fascinating. And I think the you know the difference between cybersecurity earlier in those days versus the cybersecurity now is probably completely very different and changed. And do you want to kind of talk about how it's changed a little bit based on your experience? Well, you know the um, you know a lot of the targets targets back then were really data centers. You, mm. you know, the advent there wasn't a lot of mobile computing per se, and, and you know as the as mobile uh, mobile uh, computing stepped to the forefront. There was no such thing as um, as really a data center. You know, there's that old adage, uh, you know, hard and crunchy on the outside, soft and chewy on the inside. So everybody was building walls to keep bad people out. But when uh, when you start extending what those walls look like with mobile devices and um, wireless networking, you know, what, where then do you put these perimeter defenses? So it all became about. Uh, the whole the whole premise of layered security and really really looking at security of each device and the vulnerability of each access point um, makes it a lot more complicated in today's world because you have to stop uh, you have to stop all the access points for bad people and you know they only have to find one way in and spent a lot of years um, uh, having white hat white hat teams and there we've never had an engagement you know for 15 plus years where we failed. Uh, failed to gain access to uh, to an environment that we were hired to hired to test. Wow, that's impressive. Actually, I'm curious. There was a recent Washington Post article about uh, Crypto AG. It's a cybersecurity company back in the day, and apparently, it was secretly owned by the CIA, and it was used to kind of gather information from um, you know nations, basically. Any thoughts on that? I'm just curious, based on your experience, I thought I'd ask you. Yeah, that well, you know, not so much on crypto AG. I think, you know, I think 
one would be naive that we didn't that we that any nation really really doesn't have uh, some type of offensive capability to to both um, to both gather gather intelligence information as well as uh, plans to to use cyber uh, cyber techniques in a cyber warfare capacity. It's really all part of the modern modern day battlefield, and um, you know there's a there are collection points everywhere. I mean, we, we you see you see a lot of issues today with counterfeit hardware and and. A lot of that counterfeit hardware has back doors um, to gain entry into a given device. I mean, why all the fuss with Huawei and, and 5G in terms of what that may provide in terms of access for, for intelligence organizations? You know, it's been all been part of the game uh, over the last uh, 30 plus years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, speaking of uh, fraudulent hardware, I also think about cryptocurrency wallets and how important it is to buy your cryptocurrency hardware wallet from a reputable source. Otherwise, you know, potentially you might be putting money into there that could be emptied out in a second. So that's very important. Um, let's get into how you got into healthcare. Sure. Um, well, when I, when I did leave the Air Force and I, as I said, I joined, um, joined a small little consulting group. One, uh, one, of, the, one of the early con, uh, contracts back then was a small little health organization called Kaiser Permanente. Mm -hmm. So that was my first real exposure into, um, into the broader footprint of health and helping them think through some of their early, early forays into distributed um, electronic medical records and, and really extended connectivity and engagement models. So that was actually pretty fun. And then, you know, a lot of the health engagements um, after that went, went on the back burner a bit. And a friend of mine, who was the first CIO of Goldman Sachs? Um, actually, actually, there's one step before that. So, uh, I was working with um, a government integrator after uh, selling one of my early startups uh, to that company, and we ended up doing a lot of work for the Army and the Air Force and the Navy and some federal institutions. And that work really centered around building case management solutions to help help our in injured um, men and women in uniform kind of work through the, the process of temporary disability and some eventually into permanent disability and onto the VA. Um, and what we recognized even in that process, which in a lot of ways is a little more streamlined, there's there's a lot of hiccups and, and a lot of blockers along the way um, to get, get individuals the care and the treatment they need. Um, and so wanted wanted to do something about that. And we we ran a lot of projects to do just that and improved a lot of those processes. And then a friend of mine, as I mentioned earlier, he was the first CIO at Goldman Sachs. And while he was in that position, he and his team invented what we all know now, straight through transactional processing, which was the basis of, of the explosion of Goldman Sachs as, a, as an international financial institution. Can you explain um, that a bit? He, I don't think I'm too familiar with it, and my audience probably isn't either, if you could. Yeah, so when you talk about straight through transactional processing now, but I mean, this, let's take it at a simple level, which is a credit card. So you go and use your credit card. Um, there's a point of sale terminal. Uh, it transacts at the point of sale. It determines if you have uh, the back end solutions, which are pretty much invisible to everybody. It determines if, uh, if there's a balance on the credit card that you can make this purchase. It approves the purchase. It decrements uh, the amount left on the credit card. And um, and the vendor in which you're purchasing whatever you're purchasing, purchasing from gets paid. So that's that's pretty much an automated process. There's nobody in the middle 
um, of that transaction. And so in the in the broader retail or investment banking world, um, there are a lot of air gaps when you're talking about dealing dealing with broader base uh, stocks and commodities and other large scale financial uh, financial instruments that if you save if you could really save milliseconds, milliseconds in the buy, buying and selling of, of those kinds of instruments, you, you generate a lot of revenue for your organization and, and for your customers. And, and being able to do that without all the touch points or, or any air gaps um, and do that faster, that was a huge competitive advantage early on in, in the growth of Goldman Sachs. And so, yeah. so what he did, when he left Goldman, um, he started another technology company and actually took that one public and ended up selling it. And then he decided, you know, healthcare, healthcare has an issue. And that's kind of a similar issue in this notion of straight through transaction processing, which, which we still have today. You know, when, when I show up um, to receive service, uh, it's better, but uh, I still have, I have some difficulty in, in uh, the provider presenting me with what my potential out-of-pocket expenses might be at that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you have to wait for three or four bills to show up and and a threat of sending to a collection agency before right. you say, okay, this is this is the real one. And then then you got to go back and challenge, challenge your payer sometimes, um, you know, based on did they get authorization or not. So it's a very complicated process. And you know, in reality, it doesn't, doesn't have to be. So we started a revenue cycle um, management company to really begin to address that problem and started started gaining a lot of traction, called me up and said, hey, you want to come help us grow this thing, mm-hmm. uh, which we did. And But then in 2014, it was it was really time to step out and and uh, start something back uh, back on our own again. What, which, what was the name of that company? That was actually Recondo Technologies, who okay. was just recently sold to Waystar. Huh. Um, it's interesting. I would say that some people would argue that a credit card transaction does have people in the middle, you know, clearing houses or whatnot. But um, I guess it was an improvement at the time. Well, it depends. On, nobody has to. There's not a person in the middle to prove prove the purchase. Well, it's that's kind of true. set up automatically. You know, there's still. I mean, you still have banks involved, right. you know, in terms of approving your credit limits and and they're like Bitcoin, you know, a Bitcoin transaction, for example. Correct. And and there's still there are still clearing houses. I mean, there's a I'm out here in Colorado. There's a really a, a fairly large company that's um, done a pretty admirable job of focusing on that, which is First Data. So there there's still a lot of a lot of folks in the middle of those transactions, but they tend to be automated based on a set of rules. Right. Let's get into Burst IQ a little bit. So, what would you say is the value proposition of Burst IQ, and what problem are you trying to solve? Let's start with the problem, and you know our problem, our our problem you know, is really really coming back to kind of epicenter has, uh, has been kind of at the core of my career for 20, 20 plus years, which is the intersection of of data and privacy. Mm-hmm. When when I first stepped out to to start Burst IQ, actually actually was uh, getting a little angry at the number of notices I was receiving about my data being stolen, you know, be mm-hmm. it from a financial institution. Um, and the last one was the government of um, was the government, the Office of Personnel Management. It said, "Hey, all your all your background and security information was was compromised." And oh no, by the way, to help you out, we're going to give you one year of um, identity protection. Yeah, one year when 
when you were talking about years and years of background information, just not on myself, but my family and friends and acquaintances, because uh, those are pretty extensive. I said, you know, privacy is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And this is back in 2014. Mm-hmm. And we wanted wanted to go address that because, you know, I felt as a person, I, I have rights to my to my own data. And as we really started pushing on it and being around health and getting some broader exposure in the health in the health space beyond even revenue cycle, um, it, you know, we found data was one of the, one of the core problems and still is one of the core problems that are inhibiting this new generation of health and health access. And um, not only from the standpoint of of a lot of the traditional players in the space, uh, uh, you know, really want to uh, tuck that data away. They don't necessarily want to share it for a lot of different reasons. And some of it is um, is really financial exposure. But we're getting to a point now where, you know, it's really more about dealing with the person and engaging a person over time. And for us, you know, we see 16 docs over time, uh, over our lifetime. So to really be able to, to address that problem, start unlocking some of that data interoperability issues and really putting some power back into the true owners of the data um, and allowing them to consent to how that data is used and in what way uh, we thought was a huge opportunity, difficult opportunity to explain early on back in Mm -hmm. 2015, um, but an opportunity nonetheless for what we would consider kind of a next generation of, of data interoperability solutions. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you mentioned we see, you know, 16 doctors over our lifetime. I honestly think that's, that's a little bit low. I feel like we see a lot more if you include dentists, specialists, you know, the people that might be drawing our blood, like the technicians, the nurses. Um, so all those people are part of this ecosystem and, you know, we should count them in as well, I think. That's true. That's yeah. true. And, you know, what's interesting about it is it's it's not going to it's not going to shrink anytime soon. Right. I mean, because we're, we're used to we're used to that every every day all the time kind of access model <clears throat> and health is going to get there and it's going to get there where the current system is going to get there whether they want to or not simply because of everything all the everything that's emerging all the new uh, precision medicine type tests i mean there a lot of that adoption acceptance coming from the consumer angle you know where where did my ancestors come from but then you have all this really cool iot that you know sticks on you that you may ingest that watches you. That's really providing a whole new set of therapeutics and digital companions that uh, have become pretty transparent to our lives. And then, and of course, you can't downplay uh, you know where AI and machine learning fits in over time. It's all really going to drive a whole different kind of engagement model, and and that's our fundamental premise. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, my understanding of Burst IQ is that it's quite a comprehensive platform where it includes helping payers connect with providers. It's also helping patients connect with providers and potentially all the ancillary, uh, you know, industries that come about from that. Um, Would you agree? Like how comprehensive is it? Uh, Are you having a specific focus in one key area? Because I know for a startup, um, even though you've recently or last year you've had some you know your first raise it was about five million dollars it's still you know not enough to do everything so is there some sort of focus that you're looking at sure uh well you know the the way i like to describe it and you use the word is connections mm-hmm. and we think it's it's connections that change health and and we can talk about blockchain a little more but 
you know, the philosophy of blockchains, blockchains are networks and networks create connections. In our case, connections create communities which drive change. And we'll go back to the tech in a second. So Mm -hmm. our whole goal was how do we how do we create a platform to facilitate this connection and really at a data level and and we have and really facilitate the use of a platform. So look for partners in in different verticals um, in the market. And we can talk about a lot of those partners. It'll make us sound eclectic, but really what we do is we do two things really, really well. Mm-hmm. We're able to integrate um, integrate uh, complex data sets regardless of ownership. So it can be different folks can own, own, own these uh, different data sets and, and we can deal with the inherent dirtiness of health data. Mm-hmm. Um, and then second, we overlay uh, the ability to enforce granular consent at a data object or a data element level. So we do that that really, really well. And because we do that really well, really well, it allows kind of new types of applications to merge more network or connected oriented apps that, that connect uh, what we like to say, you know, we build mutable health profiles of people, places and things more important, allow the connections between them. And, um, and that last part is probably the key part. But again, two things really well, which is um, dealing with complex, uh, complex data uh, and health is complex and enforcing a granular consent model. Interesting. How would you say that blockchain adoption is going at this point? I know there's some awareness and definitely in the fintech space, also in healthcare now, but what's your perception? You know, it's a, I mean, that's a great question. Everybody has their own view of where the adoption cycle happens to be. And there's, there's still a bit of hype, but you know, what I think, where I think we are um, as an industry, we, we are coming off, you know, first the monster hype in 2017 around all the, all the token sales. And then, you know, trudging through crypto winter that extended into a lot of 2019. And we started seeing a little more adoption at an enterprise level where where start where you start seeing it utilized in point solutions. Um, but more importantly, where I think you see kind of the the acceleration of maturity um, are around the protocols within the stack. You know, the internet started out as a pretty fundamental set of protocols, but it wasn't until you started adding some of the content management capabilities, uh, the browser that that really started taking off mass adoption at the consumer level. And that's where I think we are. So there are some very, very, uh, really solid use cases and fintechs ahead of everybody. But in, in, in health, as a broad spectrum of health, you're starting to see it, see really solid applications in supply chain. Um, and, uh, and in our case, you know, we have a number of really really high volume production users on the platform now. So it's it's moving out of the mystery now into um, a valid technology stack that's able to solve some problems that, that haven't really been able to be addressed uh, until now. Gotcha. So does Burst IQ need blockchain though? Like does it need that system or that sort of network to operate? And it, you know, why? You know, it was uh, last last week. I had the had the opportunity um, to participate in an event at the European Parliament. You know, and so a lot of blockchain fanatics in in the audience. But there was there was one gentleman who's a bit of a skeptic. He said, "Hey, mm-hmm. you know, I understand you know all this patient advocacy. We had a patient advocacy person on the panel, and um, and some of the other use cases uh, that uh, a representative from IEEE was there talking about." I said, "But." Why not just use a database? I mean, it's right. a very valid question, right? Um, and and I think uh, you know I think you have to look at it from a perspective that um, 
while there are some database capabilities, characteristics, I should say, in blockchain, there are things that databases do do better. Um, but when you're talking about multiple participation, multiple participants, mm -hmm. and there's no centralized ownership and control, or shouldn't be anyway, and, and really not gonna emerge that way at the foundational transactional environment, it's a great place for blockchain. And that's, that's where we, we believe we sit. You know, we believe we sit at, at building these connections and, and enabling a true distributed governance model across a very fragmented industry that I don't think is ever going to have anybody sitting at a core with a with a centralized database. I think it's, it's pretty much impossible. I mean, you don't even see that in single payer uh, uh, systems internationally. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. In 2013, Congress enacted a law called the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, or DSCSA, which outlines steps to build an electronic interoperable system to identify and trace certain prescription drugs as they are distributed in the United States. In 2017, the MediLedger project brought together companies to explore using blockchain technology to address these interoperability requirements designated to go into effect in 2023. In 2019, early 2020, the FDA requested pilot projects that can demonstrate capabilities or address issues expected in the DSCSA. The MetaLedger Consortium is answering the FDA's call to show how a blockchain solution can sufficiently fulfill the requirements of the DSCSA's 2023 goals. The list of MediLedger participants include drug manufacturers like Amgen, Genentech, GSK, Novartis, Pfizer, and Sanofi. It also includes drug dispensers and distributors such as Amerisaurus Bergen, Cardinal Health, McKesson, Walgreens, and Walmart. Even logistics and transportation companies like FedEx are part of the MediLedger Consortium. The group very recently published a 35-page report demonstrating the feasibility of using blockchain for compliance with the DSCSA requirements related to electronic package level tracing of drugs. They conclude that data privacy requirements in pharma can be met by using zero-knowledge proof technology, ensuring confidential information is not shared. Additionally, the authenticity of drug transaction information can be confirmed, allowing for better recall processes and investigations. The report does state that there are clear challenges ahead, including the fact that there are no standards currently to make multiple systems interoperable. The MediLedger network believes that they can add value to a multi-enterprise business network by enabling the following components. Data synchronization, asset exchanges, multi-party business process automation, and business rule enforcement. I think this is yet another example of progress in the blockchain healthcare consortium landscape. A link to the full report can be found in the show notes. And now back to the show with Frank Ricotta, CEO of Burst IQ. Right. Well, let's get into the specifications of your stack, your technology stack. So um, maybe we can start with which you know base protocol are you using to run Burst IQ, the life chain, the burst chain? Is it Ethereum is it okay? Well, you know, we'll, we'll give that we'll give that a shot, um, and uh, hopefully, I'll be able to answer that at at the level 
<laughs> at the at the level you're interested in. So you think about think about it from a perspective that we have three three layers in our protocol stack or our fundamental protocol stack. Mm-hmm. So at the core is um, is obviously some DL, DLT technology, and and we chose to spend a lot of our energy at, at level two and level three protocols, and re, uh, really being able to overlay on on uh, a lot of the DLT technologies, but uh, specifically because we felt those protocols had a, had a bit had a had some way to go um, in terms of their maturity uh, across multiple dimensions. Um, and there were some really awesome organizations addressing that. So we can overlay um, on an Ethereum, uh, on an Ethereum network uh, and integrate at a couple levels. We can overlay on, um, on, some, of the, uh, on some of the current bit, uh, underlying Bitcoin forks hmm. um, that we, lo- we like very nicely. They're, they're becoming kind of the foundation for some of the uh, distributed identity solutions, and and even can extend over uh, and interact with the with the guys over at, at Hedera. So, we wanted to be able to to be agnostic and be able to plug in uh, anything at that level, um, and still have our upper layer protocols work in terms of creating a set of smart services. So, foundationally, foundationally, you know, we started out with uh, with basically plugging in some of the Ethereum tech and. Have kind of have kind of worked out from there, but then on at the layer two protocol, um, and you know, for us, blockchain is as much a, a method and a way of doing things as any of the techs. Um, so we apply blockchain methods to sign data. So hmm. kind of fundamental core to the to the tech architecture is the notion of a self-aware data object, and um, that object has its raw data. It's had it, it has its metadata definitions. Uh, to it, um, we add edge relationships to it so we can build complex data models, and then we have the ability to sign it and sign it on, on permission on what that how that data can be used and who owns it and and the ability to have multi owners, and so that signing process is is where we use blockchain blockchain methods to attest to the state the state and the uh, integrity of the data and the ownership uh, and not. Keeping data off chain and, and writing an integrity hash back to back to a chain, hmm. it's actually embedding a digital signature around um, around a data object, almost tokenizing it. Um, and and for that, we use a little bit lighter weight, so we use a variation of gossip uh, to uh, to deal with those data associations. So, so you can think about what we do is we build a bunch of side chains on top of the DLT. That's how we do it, and then. And then on top of that, we wrap a, a, a smart contract structure uh, to enforce consent, and and not just a you know kind of a, most smart contract structures are kind of a a one or are kind of a linear set of events or, or triggers. In our case, when you deal with data, there's more than one owner. There can be more than one sets of permissions. You have to deal with uh, data provenance in terms of, of the tracking of the data and governance in terms of dealing with national national regulatory issues, regional regu- regulatory issues, and even local and down to applications like person person rights. Um, and so we wrap all that into a smart contract structure. That's really interesting. And, you know, I'm sure there are different user types that can access the chain or the platform and different user types might have different sorts of permissioning um, access. Correct. And I'm curious, are there any sort of user types that are permissionless, meaning anyone can just create a new wallet or account 
or are they all permissioned accounts? Um, and I'm not sure well, if I'm asking the question, you know. Yeah, no, I'm, no, I understand. So do, do we have to know, do we have to know who the end user is? So it, you have to look at it from a couple of perspectives. So our, our, our approach is to be a B2B place. So we're, we're, we're really working to enable the next round of health innovation and kind of data, uh, data exchanges that that's where we sit. So on one end, we have a set of health standard protocols that allow us to interface with all the existing solutions out there. So if you're in a health space, you're going to know things like HL7 and Fire and a set of customized web services that plug into those systems. And then, then at that top layer, um, you know, we, we want to make it easier for uh, easy for developers. So we have a set of web services and, and APIs. So if a developer understands Python or Java, any form, JavaScript or hardcore Java, um, understand CRUD calls, uh, they could, they, they could adopt a platform very, very easily. And then, and then we started building a set of uh, accelerators for the app. So in your case of understanding the user mm -hmm. and who the user is, we have to understand who the data owner is and whether we know the person by a full identity or by an anonymous identity. Mm -hmm. For us, it really, we don't really care. It really depends on, um, uh, on the application level and what's happening at the app application level. Because why I say we don't care because at the data level, you have to be able to deal with anonymized data. So you can do broader population health analytics without exposing um, personal health information. That makes sense. And you know, being a B2B type of company, um, you want your clients to have the option of, have the flexible option, being able to go anonymous or building out an application layer where they go and ask for full identity for all their users. They have the option of going either way, basically. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, how is large sets of data stored, like an image or video related to healthcare, medical images, you know, x-rays, things like that? Is that also on the chain or is that pulled off chain? Well, um, you know, when you deal, let, let's hang with medical imagery. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that in and of itself is really special techniques to handle, handle med medical image, really high quality medical Im imagery. And so can normal data constructs just don't handle that very well. So that's really kind of an exception for us in terms of, you know, that would, that would have to, that's one kind of set of data that we would store in, in more of a protected kind of non-chain data access, access vault. Um, but uh, being able to store short videos and even some MRI type data, if it, depending on the size, right, the size and volume, that that's all doable. So anything you can do with in a in in a NoSQL data engine, you can you can do on the platform and and really be able to assign a test and sign sign those data objects. And I know that you know your platform is HIPAA and GDPR compliant. Tell us a little bit about the process of the design for that, and maybe you know what your thoughts are yeah. on privacy in general a little bit more. Well, you know the regu the regulatory space um, is is interesting in in kind of multiple multi dimensions because you know there's regulatory um, requirements when you talk about HIPAA obviously apply to a lot of straight healthcare organizations and then you can extend into some extensions that apply to clinical research re research and laboratory environments and and. Everything really, to me, from you know being an old security guy, kind of 
defaults down to a couple sets of premises. What are your processes, you know, policies and processes, and then what control mechanisms you have to enforce those. That's how all kind of modern compliance structures work. And I don't care if you're basing, basing it on HIPAA or PCI on the credit card space, they all kind of default to policies and controls and procedures. Now, it doesn't mean that that's the best thing to do. And that was kind of that that emerged after 9-11, kind of that whole compliance um, compliance structures with Sarbanes-Oxley. But it is solid because it kind of forces a certain operating parameters. You know, in the case of HIPAA, it doesn't tell you how to do anything. It just tells you got to do certain things. Um, but to get, but to pass a pass a compliance audit, it's not it's not just an auditor shows up for a day or two and says, okay, you are now um, SOC two type two as an example, which is one of the variations. It doesn't say you're SOC two type two compliant. And what they do is they first show up and they spend quite a bit of time reviewing all your control mechanisms, all your policies, and your procedures, and in terms of have you covered all covered all the bases required in the in the regulatory um, uh, standards. And then second, they come back periodically over six to 12 months and, and say, are you actually doing these things? And so they look at audit trails, they look at your, your own, your own logs, even, even your HR procedures. When somebody leaves, uh, did you invalidate, devalid, did you kick them off the system? Basically right. you kill their account. Um, so it's a pretty in-depth process. Um, and, you know, we've, we've now uh, made it through our second, full set of full audits, um, second year of full audits and really proud of our team because they came out of the, came out of the backside of this with, with no, uh, no exceptions and no management exceptions. That's extremely difficult to do run environments at this level for, you know, probably 10 years. And it's the first time I've ever had anything come out on the back end with, with no write-ups. Wow. Congrats on that. Sounds like an accomplishment. So, Taking a step back a little bit, you know, healthcare is a multi-party party, let's say. You have patients, providers, payers, pharma, research, and they're all in this ecosystem. And I'm wondering, with this new sort of blockchain marketplace or economy, or rather data marketplace, how is Burst IQ kind of facilitating those connections and transactions between the multiple different stakeholders in, in the healthcare system? That's an awesome question. So, you know, when we when we launched the platform back in 2017, as you as you would see it today, it was an enterprise enablement uh, solution to to really facilitate facilitate you know enterprise apps. Um, and uh, that base use case, and we've talked about this publicly um, on and off over the last year, was Empiric Health and Empiric went out of Intermountain Healthcare. And where where the platform's being used today is really twofold. It's, they have um, 100 plus uh, facilities on the platform now, so it allows them to separate church and state between the, their various customers. They really provide an overview um, in terms of best practices across all those, all those data sets as in terms of delivering their service. So that's that's an example of how it works today. And then where some of the newer production um, applications are sitting are really at this intersection of digital and clinical therapeutics or, or digital companions. So you have these high priced treatments um, that do require pre-authorization in many cases from payers. So there's a whole process associated with that. Um, and, and then you have to track uh, and educate the providers themselves and how to properly administer 
administer the treatments. And then you want from a provider of those treatments, you want to be able, in terms of a pharma, you want to be able to track the uh, effectiveness of what's happening with those um, and, and have some level of engagement, both with the provider and the person. So a whole nother set of ecosystems there. And, and what's emerging there are these the notions of digital companions that kind of walk along with the patient and, and help them through a treatment process and, and post-treatment. And, and we're even seeing it so, you know, extend to these to really cool applications, particularly in oncology, where treatment is specifically tailored and manufactured for a person. So you're taking bio samples from the person and um, and that runs through its its chain of custody to the to the manufacturer in turn produces the treatment chain of custody back and is administered. And you now you have to kind of monitor what's going on with the person. So that, the, that's the other end of the spectrum on that kind of cross utilization. And then then in the middle, I would say we have a lot of partners that are just trying to deal with a very difficult problem of care coordination, hmm. either you know with an elderly parent or across a number of doctors, you know in terms of dealing with access, access to, to treatment and sharing information. Yeah, and I was thinking when you were saying there's a chain of custody between, the person and their biosample and then going to the pharma company and then back to the to the patient are you is the vision for all of that to be tracked on the blockchain the chain of custody yeah, absolutely okay yeah. and is that currently I mean, being done with burst iq with your um, partners you know i'm going to say uh, without 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 crossing the line here i'm going to say yes but they're they're pilot they're pilot those are right. pilot initiatives on that end of the spectrum where we see a lot of production really is is uh, back more in the data sharing and collaboration space and in traditional care paths and even some some wellness applications that's really cool i mean if you think about it like even it's a pilot i think there's still a lot of potential there and you know if they are able to fine-tune all the processes behind it i think it's a really great opportunity for the patient pharma data collection i think it's great so that's awesome yeah absolutely I mean, and that's, that's, see, that's really where the excitement is for me. I mean, a lot of people say, hey, you're going to put health records on the chain. It's, yeah, you know, I, I don't think that's a business, personal, personal health records. And it's the connections. And it, it, yeah. It, you know, where, where the real fun starts emerging is all this really cool precision medicine, you know, around omics and cellular biomarkers and how that really allows me to adjust myself and facilitating a whole set of connections around coaching people like me, people that are helping me where, where you see, see the successful health applications emerge. There's a, there's a touch to them, right? It's not just an app that, Hey, I'm going to track my calorie intake. Mm-hmm. You know, all the new ones have, Hey, how are you doing today, Frank? Mm-hmm. You missed this checkpoint. You doing okay. And, and, and we see if we can facilitate that, that broader human dimension of life, um, then, then I think we have a chance to really, really change things significantly. Yeah, and I think you know, like you mentioned earlier, the the ethos of blockchain is about community. So getting people together—that's really the the goal and yeah. vision here. So tell me a little bit about the Burst IQ user experience. So, I'm not sure which user type would be the best example here, but I'll let you kind of decide and just walk me well, through. Like, do you download an app? Is it an, a web-based platform? Definitely, definitely not an app. We're not, we're not deploying apps. And so um, let's start from a, from our community edition, because we have, 
have this amazing community growing up around the world that are building apps on a platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody pops us a note, it's still permission to access. We haven't just fully opened it. Have to control cost a little bit on that side of life. Um, so somebody says, hey, I'd like to access the platform. I'm working on XYZ product. or I'm wor- working on you know, a personal health record for this region of the world. Great. And so we, you know, we pr- provision them up on the platform. So their experience would be they get an account. Um, they have their own secure data zone pr- provision. So it's their space. Um, and they have access to, um, to a whole set of APIs uh, that we expose to the community side. And I'll talk about some of the extensions here in a sec. Um, and then they have at it. So we have a, a you know, uh, kind of the standard Slack and other ways for them to communicate with us. Um, but what, again, what's been really cool the last couple couple months are communicating with each other. So they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're building extensions and posting it for others to consume in terms of data connectors into other, other systems. Um, and they're collaborating on solving problems. So their experience is basically they get they get access to all the APIs, they get a set of documentation, they get access to all the inbound inbound interfaces um, to interface with all the plugins, um, and then we give them some accelerator kits around advanced ad- analytics and predictive modeling, uh, and a handful of other things that they can use to accelerate their app development. Um, on the on the bigger solutions that we deploy, those those tend to be those tend to look a little more traditionally from a system integration perspective because, you know, I'm going to consider those those the high touch solutions because there's a lot of moving parts there because we're integrating with a lot of di- disparate solutions. We're helping helping uh, really construct some of the application um, extensions to take advantage of uh, some of the inherent blockchain and and data features within it, within the platform. So those run through a little more of a six to eighteen month cycle um, to get to go from start to full massive enterprise deployments. Interesting. And, you know, actually you mentioned, you know, these are developers that are developing different parts of the world. So you have this global reach. Um, What are some of the advantages there and what are some of the, you know, challenges that you faced being global? Um, You know, the, the advantages, I mean, it goes back, it goes back to why you have to love the blockchain community in general. Yeah. One, they're very collaborative um, and um, very, um, very evangelical about the the culture and the principles of blockchain. You know, an inclusion model of uh, individual empowerment and and just the the broader culture of everybody everybody can win. Mm-hmm. Um, the the whole view of abundance versus scarcity, and so the advantages of that we start tapping into these innovation pockets that traditionally kind of the traditional technology cycles ignored because they don't view it as a good investment in certain parts of the world or just doesn't have a reputation of, of a Silicon Valley or a New York, Boston or London or, you know, some of the other places around the world. So you get some really smart people that have, that are very, very passionate about health and are passionate about blockchain. And it's an awesome combination. Um, so that's great. That's a good thing. You know the the downside is you have to be able to to really support um, kind of this multi-jurisdictional issue um, when it comes to helping them work through um, the governance and and the regulatory issues for their part of the world um, and the fact that they're you know it's a seven by twenty four operation we're you know we're not a huge company yet um, so those have been some of the challenges but 
we, we made a, a very concerted effort for, for this to, to have an international pro- footprint and not just focus on the U.S. health economy. You know, we were talking a little bit before about user experience and one of the, I guess, products, maybe I can call it, is LifeGraph. You want to explain to the audience what that is? Yeah, LifeGraph is is how we build the data constructs. You know, so when you know, we talk about building these profiles of people, places, and things, um, you know, think of kaleidoscopes. In the in traditional data science models, um, there's there's constructs of of graph modeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and going back to my intelligence days, it's kind of fundamental to how you build insights into a given thing you want to look at. You know, and, and the connections, first order connections, second and third order connections, and it's really how all machine intelligence works, you know, in terms of building connections and driving its learning algorithms down. So what LifeGraph is, is, is the data, is the health data version of your social graph, you know, that's behind Facebook and all, all the other social platforms. So more complex when you're dealing with all the data extensions um, and the things that operate within the network itself, you know, because you have really smart devices in, in the health space. Um, and so life graphs allow us to build these constructs of relationships and and then from a data presentation and some of the techniques we use, if you think of a kaleidoscope, say, hey, now I want to I want to view things around Frank or now I want to view it around these meds that he's taken and, and the connections associated with the meds or this his doc over here and then present them up to the app, an application in a way they like to consume it. So be it a SQL structure, no SQL structure on structured data. Um, and that's life graphs. Yeah. And, and all that data is again, owned by the person themselves. That's that correct. That, then I think that's yeah. an important part to yeah. kind of emphasize here. Uh, when you talk about like Facebook and other platforms that ha- have something maybe similar, you know, talks about where you've been, for example, Google maps knows exactly where you've been. You can see like oh, yeah. the graph of where you've been, but that's not technically the data is not owned by the person. Yeah. And I, and you know, what's, What's kind of, I mean, it's it's really cool because we're kind of at this vortex right now. Um, you know, Europe, Europe's been ahead of us for quite some time on GDPR in terms of really empowering the person to own their data and the whole notion of right to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. We saw California just pass the first bit of pretty significant legislation around that, and it's going to propagate across the U.S. And we've had elements of that within the health space, but it, it's going to be kind of a fundamental principle, which, which, which is going to be interesting in terms of how a lot of big tech handles that um, mm-hmm. because a lot of their revenue models driven about understanding you and being able to sell that understanding of you and your persona. Exactly. So it definitely will be interesting. I'm watching all the big tech giants and seeing how they're going to, you know, adapt to what's going on. So let's talk about, if you wouldn't mind more about potential pilots you have going on, some customers, some uh, partners in the industry that are currently working with yeah. you and Burst IQ. I'll hit a few because I mean, we go down a pretty good list. And, and I always have to do a shout out to kind of our first anchor customer, which I mentioned earlier, which is Empiric Health. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Empiric's health business model is really look at surgical workflow and optimization and drive costs, unnecessary costs of surgical workflow for hospitals. Um, and their their processes and methods. Um, uh, are able to identify up to a 25% cost saving pretty much in any facility they inter- interact with, which is very significant when you consider that for most hospitals, surgery accounts for ha- half of the cost and up to 80% of the cost within 
you know, within their operational structure. Of course, it accounts for a lot of revenue too. Um, and so being able to drive some costs out of that and, 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 um, and really drive unnecessary utilization of resources and waste is pretty important. So love what the empiric folks are doing that, you know, the Rick, Rick Adam, who's their CEO, what he likes to say, you know, if we are able to deploy this nationwide, you know, and, and attain the savings that we identify, we could pay for every uninsured person in the U S and have money to spare. That's pretty interesting. You know, that's a pretty bold statement. So I love that. And, um, and then uh, let's let's throw out um, another partner has been one of our early partners, which is uh, a company called Flowmetric. They're they're an outsourced lab around flow cytometry, so really doing cellular biomarkers. Um, and so we're helping them with data curation and management of uh, their traditional lab business. They work with pretty much every major pharma uh, on the planet. I think they're usually considered the top, if not one of the top two, two flow cytometry labs in the world. And Flow cytometry is really kind of at the core of of the of the trail that starts with gen- genomics. You get into cellular cellular biomarkers around uh, telomeres. You know, it's been a popular thing. So we help them there with data curation and and, and maintaining compliance within their lab operations. Uh, but they're also launching a new set of of tests, both for docs and consumers, um, at this level for specific things like toxicity uh, measurements. Um, and and we're the underlying framework for all of that kind of chain of custody and data data distribution. So it's really good biotech biotech play on on that end of life. You know, we're, we've teamed with with them and with the United States Air Force Academy, my old alma mater, hmm. uh, to really really do a little clinical study uh, around uh, men and women who've been exposed to toxic environments when they were deployed, and how how can we um, get ahead of some of the treatments they may need down the road and, and kind of mitigate the cost and the load on the system. So that's pretty cool. Um, partner partner in Australia, love Dr. Rob uh, Laidlaw. He's uh, r- literally a brain surgeon. He's a neurosurgeon mm-hmm. uh, by trade. He, he's blockchain blockchain enthusiast, fanatic, and sitting in Australia and said, hey, they launched this this uh, portal so every person in Australia can get access to their health information and it stinks. So <laughs> millions opt out. He says, I'm going to go fix that. And so he did with Secure Health Chain and um, really focused on, as well on on the imaging side of life, particularly around skin cancer and uh, other skin elements. So those, those are three, but I keep going. I mean, uh, I think that's, you know, I'm sure there's a list somewhere on your website or some somewhere else that we can, you know, our listeners can find. Um, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. I'm curious, actually, is Burst IQ, do they have patents around some of the technology that you have? Yeah, yeah we do. We do. And there are a couple patents that um, actually I purchased from a previous company that really deal with hmm. um, deal with this kind of zero, zero knowledge authentication, which is a foundation of trust within black, blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to do it at a data and data data exchange level. So we're, so that, that's one of the foundational patents that we have. And we have another five of them in process with three kind of in the last stages of, of being granted. That's impressive. That's really awesome. I've talked to, you know, many companies and some, you know, are either just starting to apply to patents, but that's great that you already have some in place and also some are patent pending. So 
congratulations on those. Can you describe the competitive landscape and any direct competitors to your business? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I would be a classic entrepreneur and say we have no competitors. Right. <laughs> and I do think we have a pretty solid uh, uh, market lead in terms of, of rolling of really deploying production, production grade applications within the health space. I, I you know, know most of the other uh, companies in our space and, and they're just barely getting through some of the pilot. But quite frankly, health, health is one of the top industries that everybody talks about being ripe for the kinds of things blockchain can do from a disruptor perspective. And so there's a lot of entrants and a lot of them focus on point applications um, within the space. Like I'm going to build an application to support data, uh, support clinical trials, as an example. Um, I'm going to support, uh, I'm going to support a supply chain solution. So there's a couple consortiums around porting um, applications in there. Uh, credentialing has been kind of a monster space. Everybody's really, I've seen at least five companies attempt that and go away. And there's a couple out there trying to address it. I don't view those kind of applications as competitors. I view them as kind of cooperative apps at some point we're going to have data in our system they're going to need and we'd love to have them interact with the platform when it comes to platform plays uh, i mean you have to really look at uh at hyperledger in terms of they have a whole they have a whole stack of use cases within the health space which is pretty important um so you know we watch that and by extension that's ibm you mm-hmm. know and ibm i saw an, uh, a great article uh, from some of the folks in their in their blockchain group that every dollar they they make in their blockchain services generates about fifteen dollars in in services and traditional IBM products. So yeah, so, so that too actually. That's all. So we we keep an eye on IBM and and being an old IBM partner, you know, at some point when we're a little more mature, we'll go back there and and chat with them. But other big tech have have a lot of significant initiatives, and you can't discount where Microsoft goes. They they're interested in health and same with Google. And then in pure blockchain companies, you know, there's uh, there's a couple uh, that are trying to push, um, you know, push the data plat- platform. Guard time, guard time is a good example. You know that they're, they're the basis in Estonia and they're they're trying to expand out of there. So we're starting to see them a little more. Yeah, no, I understand that. There's a few that come to mind for me. Would you mind if I shared them and if I got your opinion on them? Yeah, how about it? Sure. Uh, Solvecare comes to mind and Patientory. Solvecare, I'm not as familiar with Solvecare. Um, so maybe you could talk to me a little bit about that and then we can we can address them. So it's kind of similar to, I think, what you're building in terms of having multiple stakeholders involved. It's not just like, you know, provider credentialing, but it's really focused on the patient and then being able to have the patient store their data and they do, you know, pilots with, I think they have a pilot with Lyft and Uber to help patients transport from one medical yeah. clinic or facility to their home or another clinic. So um, I think they're still piloting, of course, as well. I know they're over in somewhere Midwest. I don't remember which, I forgot which state, but um, yeah, so that's them. And Patientory, I think, you know, they're in the headlines a lot, but I'm not too familiar with the current progress or what's going on with them, but I do see them in the headlines um, a lot. Yeah, you know, Patientory, um, Patientory was, I guess you, you can consider them probably the most successful token sale in that in that mm-hmm. token window. Um, with the with the target, their initial premise was really building building that personal health record and data exchange, and 
I don't view Patientory as a competitor to ours. Um, they're they're a little different, a little different focus, kind of taking it uh, taking it from a, a different perspective. I actually, we've talked to them on and off over the last couple of years. I would I would hope at some point we we kind of intersect and, and begin to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, when when you look at Solve Care, and I, I'm just taking a quick peek at them as you were talking uh, and dealing with um, with benefits and benefits administration. If I if I um, understand what they're doing well, uh, you know, one, I think that's a, that's a really awesome, awesome place to be and, and very much can be a disruptive space because you're dealing with the, the, whole, the whole premise around, um, around the payment system within healthcare and how you manage benefits. And at some point, at some point we believe that in that whole benefit world becomes more of a co-op, uh, a co-op kind of model where the person actually owns their their profile in terms of acquiring acquiring personalized benefits and how those benefits are u- utilized and within within a, a broader community. So I I love the disruption in the pair space and benefits management is a huge space. It needs needs this this in space in terms of coordinating benefits across all the players in that that little ecosystem. And, and again, I would hope at some point in time we we plug in together down the road. I guess my philosophy overall is, you know, it's a big world and lots of things have to happen. And I'd much rather work with people than, than trying to, uh, uh, trying to compete if at all possible. Yeah. And I, you know, to be honest, I get like a very similar reaction from most of my guests when I ask that question, everyone does want to work together, you know, it just goes with that blockchain philosophy. And I did find out that, uh, the soft care partner that I was speaking about before was the Arizona care network. So they're, They've been really connected with the Arizona Care Network with yeah. Solve Care. Yeah, it's a it's an awesome space. You know, the whole PPO space mm-hmm. and, and benefits management. It's it's a great space. When I said personal health records are are not a business, in fact, you only really care about it when something's wrong. You know, and I want I don't want to look at it or if I have a chronic condition, it helps. But if I can transact with it in a way and customize what my benefits look like to me, yeah. in this age of mass customization and access. Um, that that becomes a huge huge disruptor in, in the space, and and I really do think blockchain can do that. I actually think with crypto assets, you you could fundamentally create um, a whole different kind of, of payer model. Totally agree with you there, and you know plenty of people trying to work on it. So thank you all, including you, Frank. Um, so let's talk about you know the roadmap for the product, the roadmap for your ecosystem in 2020 and beyond. What are you looking at? Well, 20, 2020 is is really trying to replicate more of the same from last year. So get as many many apps on the platform as we can, and then start building the back end um, connections. And so we're going to announce a couple new partners here in the next month or so that that really will enable some broad based access to a lot of existing health systems and solutions, which is which is a key plugin. It's one of the hardest things. You, you have to do in the health space, which is connect to, I have to if I have a, an application that, that helps a hospital do something, connecting in those systems is, is an 18 month process if you're lucky. So we, we'd like to really accelerate that. And so we're gonna announce some partnerships to do that. And then um, on the front end side, um, we, again, you see the theme, it's a partnership theme. We have a huge integration partner that we're starting to work with uh, in, uh, in the IOT space and in the 
um, in the broader kind of uh, health in integration space that we're going to announce here, here shortly as well to really kind of facilitate the outreach of the platform um, and then um, start dropping dropping in the core tech, uh, core tech as as a primary data exchange to cut across multiple applications and multiple systems. We've, we piloted that here in Colorado with, with our three uh, health information exchanges and um, we have some really solid large deployments uh, about ready to kick off for the latter half of the year. Looking forward to all that. I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that announcement with the new partners. So I currently have some additional questions, kind of more fun questions for you. What are your thoughts on the AI or artificial intelligence singularity that Ray Kurzweil has proposed that will occur in 2045? I, I think it's a it's an interesting conversation from the standpoint of of truly getting to the point um, of machine being able to think or think faster and, and and you have to go back if you're if you're in the AI space and I, I love the AI space mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of philosophy there. Sure. Uh, I, you know, at some point, I think they're going to process data and information faster than us. There, there's no no doubt in terms of making those connections. Um, but to get to the point to where they mimic consciousness, then what is consciousness? I mean, That's any serious da data guy is going to say, "Yeah, okay, you don't understand things yet." But are they going to are they going to start inhib inhibiting that kind of behavior? I I don't think he's wrong. I mean, the question is time. I still think we're a long way away from that, but um, it's really more a matter of time. What would you say uh, is maybe your favorite book or something you've read that's helped you through life? Those are those are awesome questions. So, <laughs> you know, business-wise, um, you know, I'm kind of old school. I like all the old Drucker books, you know, and, man and Drucker on management. And, it's Peter Drucker. Right? Yeah, Peter Drucker. And really, really all those structures. Um, you know, they, they're still, they're still, they're still um, they're still valid. I mean, I don't care if you're running distributed organizations or not. It's really about how you effectiveness, effectively managing manage your resources and intellectual resources in the case of what we do, um, and and keep them happy and productive. So, like those books, um, you know, I'm I'm still very much a spiritual guy. So, you know, I draft I, I draft back to some of some of those core um, core books. I, can't ignore the Bible, but I love, you know, I love uh, a lot of the, um, you know, call them mystics and in terms of really, really coming to grips with who you are as a person and your context of where you fit in the, in the, rep, in the rest of the world. Very interesting. Um, so name a historical figure or even a living leader that you would like to have dinner with. Mm, those, those are great. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, people are going to ki kick me for saying this in terms of living, but uh, wouldn't you love to have just a, a, a roundtable conversation with Trump, given where he is all over the place sometimes? <laughs> I'd be I mean, curious. Me, yeah, that would be <laughs> To me, it's more about kind of the engagement side. I mean, take the politics out, out a lot. Sure. And just like an, an interesting person. But if I had to go back in time, um, just just the way he thinks, uh, I mean, Einstein is, is so um, – yeah. so out of the box in terms of his thinking how the heck did you come up with some of those underlying um underlying laws and principles you know where did they come from i just yeah. would love to just sit and have that have that kind of conversation and then you know i'm a i'm an old military history buff um 
you know, going back a long way, you know, Hannibal, how did, you know, how did you riding in on an elephant it really put the Roman army back on their heels? What, what happened there in Patton? You know, just the way, again, his, his brain thinks. I love, I love the notion of, you know, the, the folks that just think way out of the box. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an old, old quote I've lived by for a long time. I don't even know if I can attribute the owner, but it's, you know, reason, a reasonable person adapts the world to themselves and a crazy person. Uh, I got that back. A reasonable person adapts himself to the world and a crazy person adapts the world to themselves. And I like the crazy people. Yeah, well, That's it's, what, it's okay. interesting because if you think about all like the, you know, the mad geniuses of the world, you know, at the time when they were living, everyone considered them nuts and crazy. Yeah. So like, it's funny, you mentioned Trump, you know, people right now consider him nuts and crazy. Um, you know, I'm not going to play politics here, but I'm sure Einstein at the time was also challenged by his peers as well. So it's... Well, I mean, he was labeled to have a learning deficiency when he was young. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and you see some some modern geniuses, you know, we saw we saw... The, the brilliance and the eccentricities of Steve Jobs, and, and you see a lot of that uh, in terms of of Elon Musk. You know, years ago, people thought he was nuts, too, and look look what's happening. Some people um, still do. <laughs> yeah, some people still do. Heck, he's, he's making a big impact on life. Oh, he it? is, absolutely. I think I might want to have dinner with him if you ask me. <laughs> what do you like to do during your free time? During my free time? Uh, well, you mentioned reading. I love to read, so that's that's still kind of core. But if I'm, you know, I'm a Colorado kid, born 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 and raised in Colorado, even though I've lived outside of the state and traveled all over the place. I love to get outside. I mean, I'm a I'm an avid fisherman. Love to fish and um, love to just get out and hike. And and I'll say this uh, say this probably my favorite thing to do is play with my. I'm old enough to have grandkids, so my favorite thing to do is play with my grandkids. And, chase them around and, um, you know, crawl around on the floor and play with their toys. I think that's a blast. (laughs) Well, Frank, I truly do appreciate your time today. I had a blast talking to you. And I think the audience has learned a lot about you and Burst IQ and blockchain technology and healthcare. So I just want to thank you again so much for being here. Well, again, thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun as well. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to health unchained on stitcher soundcloud google play and itunes join the health unchained community on our telegram group t.me slash health unchained if you enjoyed this episode tell your friends your bosses your teams your students to listen and subscribe thank you